And I have to say, I wrote four failed novels before publishing one. One of the things that changed for me was looking at screenplays and reading screenwriting manuals because there are rules there. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today is a bonus episode featuring the author Benjamin Percy. Earlier this week, he and I talked about the art of storytelling. Today, Ben talks about what you can learn about the craft of screenwriting in the context of this old Steven Spielberg movie. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. That's from the trailer to the 1975 movie Jaws, which Ben uses to frame this screenwriting lecture. If you haven't seen Jaws recently, you might want to watch it again to get the most out of what Ben is talking about. This episode is literally taken from Ben's lecture at the 2019 Paris Writing Workshop. Keep in mind that I recorded this with my phone, so the audio quality is not perfect. But hey, if you want the full screenwriting class or any number of other classes in travel writing or memoir or fiction or poetry, you can learn more about it at pariswritingworkshops.com or in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. The show notes will also have a link to a PDF copy of the Jaws screenplay if you want to read that in advance and take notes as Ben's lecture plays out. His talk is about more than just screenwriting, it's about storytelling and what movies can teach us about writing in general. Some of his talk alludes to some whiteboard diagrams, like the cardiogram spikes he draws to illustrate the emotional flow of Jaws, but you should be able to follow along even if you can't see the whiteboard. This episode is brought to you by the Paris Writing Workshop, which offers a number of classes next summer, including travel writing. More about that at pariswritingworkshops.com or rolfpotts.com deviate. If by chance you want to attend the classes there, you can fly out with the help of my other sponsor, Airtrex, which offers multi-stop itineraries for international flights. Check out their flight planning tools at airtrex.com. But for now, please enjoy Benjamin Percy's Paris Writing Workshop lecture on the art of screenwriting. So you are familiar, of course, with the opening of Jaws. In it, you have some party goers on a beach, Martha's Vineyard, is, is uh, Amity Island, and uh, you know this guy makes eyes with a certain someone across the fire. They're sipping whiskey. They decide to go for a midnight swim. They strip off their clothes. The guy is so drunk that he collapses on the beach. While Chrissy takes off, diving into the waves naked. So we have laughter. We have flirtation. We have sex. And then we have the attack. You know, she's first seen from below, and then above, and then the side. There's that surge of water. There's maybe just the hint of the dorsal fin, and then down she goes. And there's just the buoy, climbing, climbing, climbing. This is the standard of every horror movie, right? You introduce something that is humorous, you introduce something that is sexual, or you introduce something that creates, let's say, a, a lighter mood, 
You give your audience a tickle, in other words, and then you slug them in the stomach. What this does is creates a number of things. Primarily, it's emotional vulnerability. So I'm going to talk about some of the different things that you can accomplish with these reversals, which films are especially notable for. Uh, this film, Champions. So, emotional vulnerability. Now, when I talk about this off-balance quality, I want you to think about this. Like, let's say you're watching Touched by an Angel, which I would never recommend. This is the worst show ever made. In Touched by an Angel, there's probably somebody who has cancer. And there's probably a deathbed scene. And there's probably an angelic figure nearby. During this deathbed scene, what will happen is violins will tremble. There might be a few soft piano strokes. The lighting will get gauzy. Some sentimental exchange will then occur. Maybe the person who you know is on their deathbed will come to peace with some anger that's always bothered them. Everyone will weep, including the audience, but not me. Right? I tried to cry the last time was at the end of Braveheart. He was just so brave. And a pebble fell out. So I'm resistant to the touch by the angel effect. But what they're doing to me that's so disgusting is they are forecasting the emotion. And what that, you know what, some people embrace that. For me, what happens is my shields go up. And I deny the creator the satisfaction of making me feel. What I prefer instead is this move that you see in Jaws right here, and that you see in much more complicated ways functioning in the rest of the film, where they make you feel one way, and then a trap door opens up beneath you. You know, there's an example of this in lines like this one from the beginning of a story called Buddy the Leper. My mother believed that if you go out of your way to be friendly to people, they will take a liking to you. But this philosophy did not work for me because I was a leper. Right? They feed you the greatest platitude, right? There's something that should be stitched on a pillow somewhere. My mother believed that if you go out of your way to be friendly with people, they will take a liking to you and you're bored, you're numb, there's a narcotic effect to that, and then you fall through the trap door into a pit of, you know, balls. Uh, it's like some sort of McDonald's playpen all of a sudden because, but this did not occur, happen to me because I was a leper. I love it. The hinge of that sentence, the fulcrum point, it's almost like a seesaw where everything suddenly tips. It's tonal variance as well. Think about your keyboard as a kind of soundboard. Right? And you are a producer who is mixing effects, right? You're trying to find just that right balance of treble and bass to create the most pleasing aesthetic. You have to have, as I was talking about in the fiction workshop last week, this up and down, up and down, up and down when it comes to the summits and the valleys of the narrative orchestration, the balance of physical beats and emotional beats. But you also have to have it when it comes to just tone of your story in the same way that you need that balance of staccato and legato in music. Okay, let me give you an example of this from fiction before I get into Jaws a little bit more. 
Ursula K. Le Guin is one of my favorite writers, if you don't know her. She writes fantasy and is especially known for the Earthsea series, which I think rivals Tolkien's Middle-earth. And in her story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, she writes about this city that is a utopia of sorts. It sits by the sea, there is a wind snapping through it so that all these pennants are rippling. The sun shines off of all these towers, there are gardens everywhere, there's a shimmering of gong and tambourine, there's a parade going at almost every point of the day, there's this drug called Druze that everybody is taking that makes them especially elated, there are ponies prancing through meadows, there are naked children laughing, there is, uh, you know, an excess, an excess of happiness, an excess of sunshine. And right in the center of the story, in the exact center of the story, there is a line that reads as follows. It says, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe in Omelas, bright towered by the sea? No. You don't. You don't believe in the fantasy. Until now. Because this is what the rest of the story concerns itself with. In a basement, under one of the beautiful public buildings of Omelas, or perhaps in the cellar of one of its spacious private homes, there is a room. It has one locked door and no window. A little light seeps in dustily between cracks in the board, secondhand, from a cobweb window somewhere across the cellar. In one corner of the little room, a couple of mops with stiff, clotted, foul-smelling heads stand near a rusty bucket. The floor is dirt, a little damp to the touch, as cellar dirt usually is. The room is about three paces long and two wide, a mere broom closet, a disused tool room. In the room, a child is sitting. It could be a boy or a girl. It looks about six, but is actually nearly ten. It is feeble-minded. Perhaps it was born defective. Or perhaps it has become imbecile through fear, malnutrition, and neglect. It picks its nose and occasionally fumbles vaguely with its toes or genitals as it sits hunched in the corner, farthest from the bucket and the two mops. It is afraid of the mops. It finds them horrible. It shuts its eyes, but it knows the mops are still standing there, and the door is locked, and nobody will come. The door is always locked, and nobody ever comes, except that sometimes the child has no understanding of time or interval. Sometimes the door rattles terribly and opens, and a person or several people are there. One of them may come in and kick the child to make it stand up. The others never come close, but peer in at it with frightened, disgusted eyes. The full food bowl and the water jug are hastily filled. The door is locked. The eyes disappear. The people at the door never say anything but the child, who has not always lived in the tool room and can remember sunlight in its mother's voice, sometimes speaks. I will be good, it says. Please let me out. They never answer. The child used to scream for help at night and cry a good deal, but now it only makes a kind of whining. Yeah. Yeah, sound. And it speaks less and less often. It is so thin. There are no calves to its legs. 
Its belly protrudes, it lives on half a bowl of cornmeal and grease a day. It is naked, its buttocks and thighs are a mess of fast, uh, festered sores. And to me, this balance, this balance of the story, which is so excessive in its nauseating joy at the beginning, as it describes Omos, and is so foul and dark in its second half, is about the nature of storytelling and the point of the reversal itself. Do you believe? No. Not until you take us into the basement. Which is, in a way, a stand-in for Paris itself. All right? This is Omos we're surrounded by now. Right? This, the artistic beauty of the city, the idea of the salon. And then you have the catacombs. The catacombs make, make me believe in Paris. <clears throat> so, it comes down to belief. And that belief has to do with the balance that is the balance of light, life. There can be no light without shadow. There can be no good without evil. You can use this to great artistic effect, as you abyss has done. In her essay, Time and Distance Overcome. I once, I was introduced to Eulabis at AWP. If you don't know what that is, this is a giant gathering of nerds that happens every year in the U.S. 10,000 people or so come every year. It's always in a different city, and it's the biggest creative writing conference out there. So at AWP, there's always a reading of, of Grey Wolf authors, and I go into this big auditorium, and I sit there, and she begins the essay, and I am bored out of my mind. And then something happens. So it starts off like this. Of what use is such an invention? The New York world asked shortly after Alexander Graham Bell first demonstrated his telephone in 1876. The world was not waiting for the telephone. Bell's financial backers asked him not to work on his new invention because it seemed too dubious of an in investment. The idea on which the telephone depended, the idea that every home in the country could be connected with a vast network of wires suspended from poles set an average of 100 feet apart, seemed far more unlikely than the idea that the human voice could be transmitted through a wire. Even now, it's an impossible idea that we're connected, all of us. At the present time, we have a perfect network of gas pipes and water pipes throughout our large cities. Bell wrote to his business partners in defense of the idea. We have main pipes laid under the streets communicating by side pipes with various dwellings and in a similar manner it is conceivable that cables of telephone wires could be laid underground or suspended overhead communicating by branch wires with private dwellings, counting houses, shops, manufactories, etc. uniting them through the main cable. And it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on telling us all about the rise of the telephone. The rise of these towers, the rise, you know, the way that the sky was crisscrossed with cables. I wonder why, why is there so much hype around Eula Biss? Why is this considered an award-winning essay? And then, directly in the middle of the essay, there is a fulcrum point. There's a visual announcement in the same way that in the middle of that Ursula K. Le Guin story, there was a single sentence paragraph, the only single 
sentence paragraph in the entire story, which was, do you believe? And then this happens. In 1898, in Lake Coromont, Mississippi, a black man was hanged from a telephone pole. And in Ware City, Kansas, and in Brookhaven, Mississippi, and in Tulsa, where the hanged man was riddled with bullets. In Pittsburgh, Kansas, a black man's throat was slit and his dead body was strung up on a telephone pole. Two black men were hanged from a telephone pole in Lewisburg, West Virginia, and two in Hempstead, Texas, where one man was dragged out of a courtroom by a mob and another was dragged out of jail. And it goes on. And the rest of this essay is a brutal categorization of racial violence, all of which is connected to telephone poles and how telephone poles, right, the very infrastructure of our country, the thing that unites us all, the thing that allows communication, were instead uses as articles of violence. is horrifying. And it should be. You know, it's violence that is described on the page in a way that is meant to revolt. And it's done in such a fashion that we aren't ready for it, yes, in a similar fashion to what I was talking about with Jaws and the way that sex and violence are often used in horror. But more than that, there is a political announcement that is made here when it comes to the way that this country was built on racial violence. This country would not be where it is today, modernized, the powerhouse, if not from racial violence. By the end of this reading, everybody in that entire auditorium was weeping. I think it has everything to do with that soundboard I was talking about and how you move it. If you didn't get the name of that essay, it's Ulibis, Time and Distance Overcome. Okay, so it has to do with belief. It can also sometimes be about an aesthetic announcement, like a declaration. When I was talking about first lines the other day, I said that you said establish a tonal contract with the reader. Sometimes these reversals are almost spotlight, spotlighted moments that are announcements. Here's a good example of this from film. The good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Sergio Leone's Western. Now, if I was to ask you, you know, what are some what are some tropes of the Western genre? Like, if you're going to watch a genre, uh, a Western movie on TNT during one of their their John Ford marathons or something like that, what are some things you expect to see sprinkled throughout these movies? You can list off anything, any ingredient. Kristen, right? Hook me up. Cowboys. Tell me more about them, though. What might they look like? Spurs, uh, yeah. chaps. Very, like, just, like, strong masculinity, right? Okay, so, there we go. Yeah. Now let's go a little deeper on those cowboys. Tell me about the color of their hats. White hat, black hat. White hat, black hat. Oftentimes that's an indication of good or bad, like, you know, it's a moral gateway. What else would you see in a Western movie? Autumn. Shootouts. Shootouts. When? 
What time of day? High noon. High noon. Not noon. High noon. On the dot. Where would they take place? Nobody said in a town. Yeah, usually like in the shop area where all the people would be. The main street, right? Sometimes there's only one street. But it would be that yeah. main street. At high noon. What else? White guys and spray tans. White guys are spray tans? <laughs> oh, you're saying played, 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 yes, played. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's very true. I just had to make that comment. Maybe the grossest of all was in the searchers. Yeah. Like, you know, gun comes out of the holster, it's, you know, flying around the fingers. Okay, so there's that whole wiggle, wiggle yeah. the fingers thing as they, you know, as their eyes immediately look up and the clock is just clicking toward a dude. What else? It's like little elements. There's dust. There's a tumbleweed. What else? Yes. Tell me about the bar. Like when you enter into it, what, what do you see? It's really old and dark, and there's people dreaming and sitting around, and it comes and opens the door, and another light. Yeah, that's it. You got it. And the doors, right, are the rib cage doors. What do they serve there? Not Snapple? Whiskey. Whiskey. Just one thing, right? We only got one thing here. There's some guy, some toothless guy named Cookie playing the piano in the corner. <laughs> He's missing his teeth, the piano's missing some keys. All right, okay, so we've listed off a bunch of different things. And there's more, I'm sure, more churning through your head. The good, the bad, and the ugly knows this. But this isn't a John Ford Western, it's a Sergio Leone Western. So you know what he does? He opens up with a scene. And you've got a dude over here on one side of the town, and you've got two dudes over here. Now they come riding up because every Western movie starts with a stranger riding into town. So there's an acknowledgement of that tropic device as well. Here comes stranger riding into town, dude waiting at the end of the street. It appears to be high noon. Tumbleweed blows by, dust, covered wagon, flapping, mangy dog. Here is an anvil, here is a saloon. They knock aside their dusters and they begin to walk towards each other. But wait a second. Of these two dudes over here, one dude is wearing a black hat, and the guy right next to him seems to be with him is wearing a white hat. Dude at the end of the street, he's wearing a brown hat. What's going on here? Right there are these subtle little things where this doesn't quite read, even though it seems familiar. So their hands keep wiggling towards their revolvers. They keep marching closely, marching closer and closer to each other. And then they stand right in front of the saloon. And all of a sudden they barge in, all three of them together. And you hear gunshots go off, but you remain in the street. And this moment, which is very disorienting, given what you already know about the Western, gets weirder. The, mo the, the window in front breaks open, and a guy with a huge mustache holding a giant Fred Flintstone like leg of meat comes out with his gun smoking, and it pauses, and it goes, ay, 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 and it says, the ugly. And then he, he barges out, and he looks around a little bit. He's got, like, strings of meat hanging from between his teeth. And then he gets on a horse and rides out of town. And the camera then goes inside of those ribcage doors, and you find the people in the saloon who you were just with a moment ago, and only one of them is still alive, the other is slaughtered, and he fires off one last bullet before dying. An aesthetic announcement. What Sergio Leone was doing in this film was he was taking the John Ford Western and he was shattering it over his knee. Right? In the John Ford Western, the 
the natives are savages. The cowboy with the white hat, you know, is a, a knight. There's probably a school mom with a heart of gold in there somewhere. Right? Sergio Leone was saying, this is BS. Like, that 1950s America, that, that, that sort of aesthetic, we're just going to scramble that up. And instead he introduces Clint Eastwood, who wears a brown hat, who is completely amoral and a mercenary. And, you know, cowboys in this film are an ignoble, like, rapacious presence in the West. And all of that stuff is queued up. Just because of this one reversal, you get the whole movie right then. You see the same sort of thing in other films, like Quentin Tarantino will do this all the time. He'll have some big reversal right up front, and it'll be a sort of an announcement of his aesthetic. You think you know what you're in for, but I just pulled out the rug up. And it could be like, this is a movie that you thought was this, but now it's actually a cartoon if you look at Kill Bill. Or now it's black and white, and now it's, uh, you know, like an old horror movie. In the, in the, in the millimeter, uh, you know, composition. Anyways, if you look at these films, or you see it in Psycho as well, just to harken back to what I was talking about at the beginning. You know, that moment in Jaws, at the very beginning with sex and violence, you see that in Psycho. So you have Janet Leigh getting undressed, getting ready for the shower, and then you have the murder. Sex, violence. But there's another reversal that happens that, at that moment, in that your main character is suddenly gone. That had never been done before. And the audience felt completely disoriented, as they do at the beginning of Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, because you don't understand what this movie, this movie is not playing by the rules. Are you doing that sort of thing? Are you, are you writing a modular essay instead of a traditional essay, like a more of a mosaic piece? Are you trying to sort of like, in your sci-fi story, say something completely different about the space opera? Are you writing a postmodern horror novel? Taking a moment that will be a reversal, fine explanation, which will also be an aesthetic announcement, would be the best possible thing you could do in that first act to cue up for your audience what's coming. Okay, now here's another thing, and this is the central thing I want to talk about with Jaws <clears throat> to consider. And that is these reversals and their arrangement within the narrative are oftentimes connected to the emotional stakes of the situation, the emotional stakes of the story. So these are not mutually exclusive, some of them bleed into each other. Right now I want to talk about stakes. And along with stakes, I guess I'll just posit this as well, because these really kind of bleed into each other, is that there is a structural expectation in screenwriting. In other words, these things will happen in this place, down to the minute, at minute 15, at minute 25, at minute 50, at minute 75, these things will happen. And when you're writing short stories, when you're writing novels, when you're writing memoirs, oftentimes these beats are there as well, but it's a little more organic, it's a little more fluid, it's a little more impressionistic. But the great thing that you can learn from screenwriting 
And I have to say, I wrote four failed novels before publishing one. One of the things that changed for me was looking at screenplays and reading screenwriting manuals. Because there are rules there that you won't find in any novel uh, instruction guide on novel writing. The novelist is much more fussy and pure about his her art in the way that they talk about the muse and you know being carried away by the characters and so on and so forth. And for me, for so many years, as I was talking about during the fiction workshop, when I was going through creative writing instruction myself as a student, I was told that plot was a dirty word. Screenwriting emphasizes plot above all else. You figure out this architecture, and then you figure out how to inhabit it with the spirit. So let's get into the structural expectation. Take a look at this graph right here. And think about how it mimics some of what I was talking about last week. This is a seismograph or cardiogram of Jaws. Okay, we just talked about Chrissy's death, Chrissy's last swim, as that scene is known as. The opening of a horror movie always does this. They introduce the monster, but they introduce a veiled version of the monster. Right, if it's Jason Voorhees or Leatherface or Gremlins or the ghost of the Amityville house or whatever else, it's just like, it's just a surge of water. It's just a shadow. It's just an implication. Because you know what? The shark always looks fake. That's one of the things you learn from horror. The greatest... <clears throat> moment in any horror movie, Stephen King says, is when a character hears something from behind a door and they approach it. So the character approaches the attic door, the character approaches the basement door, the character hears something around that bend in the cave, the character maybe sees something, a glimpse of something off in the woods. Whatever the setting is, they go towards the door, the proverbial door, and they reach for the handle. As soon as that door opens, the audience screams, but they also laugh. And they laugh because whatever was on the other side isn't as bad as they imagined. This is explicitly realized in Jaws. As soon as you see the shark, it's not scary anymore. It's all about the implication of what might be below the surface. The shark looks fake. I showed it to my son. Jaws is my favorite movie. So excited to sit down with my son and watch it. Put it on. What'd you think? I said to him at the end. Chocolate fake. I should have never shown the shark. Right? Just that one maybe like chum soaked smile when it pops up behind the boat and it goes back down. That could have been enough. But take a look. There's a spike. Oh. There's another spike just a little bit higher than that first one. That's the inciting incident. Here's another big spike, here's another big spike, here's another big spike. Those action set pieces I was talking about before, there they are. Every screenplay has five to seven action set pieces. Five to seven peaks. But one of the things I'm gonna be talking about right now when it comes to these reversals or the valleys that accompany that instead. And how they are a well for snakes. 
thinks of the situation. So first, the inciting incident, though. So yes, you have Chrissy's last swim. She's dragged down into the dark. But then there's the aftermath of that. At minute 15, this is what happens. There's some anxiety on the island as to what's going on. But it's kind of easy to rule out. They're like, oh, maybe, maybe Chrissy was actually you know, hit by a, she was drunk, maybe she was hit by a motorboat. She drowned, she was hit by a motorboat. We don't know it's a shark. Don't say it's a shark. The economic vitality of the island depends on it not being a shark. But Chief Brody's still on edge. And he's at the beach, and this is the big day for the island. This is when all the tourists are there. This is when all the townies are out. This is supposed to be the beginning of the big money-making season. Minute 15. Now, as we've already learned, right, Let's have the opportunity for sex, and then let's have violence. Another way to do this, let's have some humor before we have horror. This moment on the beach is very funny. So here's Chief Brody, here's the mayor, here's all these different people crowding the beach. There's a lot of gags in here. There's kids who are making trouble. There's locals who are, you know, tossing out localisms. There, there's like an old guy who comes out of the water in a speedo and spits some water like a fountain out of his mouth, and then the kid dies. Right, the water rolls over red. You see that, that float that he was on turn over. You see just a fin, and then just the tide rolls in red. And there's this beautiful dolly shot right there where everything you zooms in on Chief Brody's face and everything expands all around him. There's this shot of deep focus. And you can see just the whole world crashing down on him at that moment. And he realizes how he's failed these people. Okay. And when it comes to the stakes of the situation, what he's going to wrestle with as he tries to figure out how to battle this villain. We've got a number of things coming together here. One is economics. Amity Island makes all of its money in these few months. So if people aren't swimming, if people aren't coming to the island, they're not spending money, then there's a long, lean winter ahead of us. And what do we have to show for it? Along with this is professional stakes. Chief Brody is new to the island. He is new to his position in the police force there. If he screws up his first summer, he's out. Along with this, political stakes. The mayor is in his business constantly. Because if Chief Brody screws up, the economic screws up, you know, the economy gets screwed up, the mayor's position gets screwed up, they all need to feed each other. Beyond this, familial stakes. Chief Brody is worried about his kids. One of the first moments you see him interacting with his family, they're flipping through this book. Kids are playing out on the dock, they're new to the island, they love the idea of being on boats. And he flips open this book on sharks and he sees this great white smashing through the bottom of the boat and attacking the people on board. And 
in the way from me, like, get off of the boat, get off of the boat. Even though they're just at the docks right there, right near their house. Those are his family. His family's put in danger several times over the course of this film. Because, as I said before, key to suspense, child in danger. The baby pram on the stairs in the untouchables. The kid in the lagoon with his boat and jaws. Now there's also, interestingly, if you look at the book compared to the movie, Romantic Stakes. Peter Benchley's Jaws, as opposed to Steven Spielberg's Jaws, has a lot of surprising things in it. I saw the movie over and over and over again as a kid, and then when I read the novel as an adult, I was like, what is this? The mafia is in it? There's also a huge subplot about an affair. His wife has an affair with the Richard Dreyfus character. Hooper, the marine biologist. And this feeds into the stakes of the situation because his marriage is in crisis and it, that connects to him going off and killing the shark. Which essentially becomes like a giant penis or something that he's trying to overdo. Like it, it becomes very, very sexualized in that way. Sort of the Moby, the Moby Dick thing as well. But there's this idea that he's you know, making up for being cuckolded by going on this manly journey. There's also, when it comes to stakes, you know, we were talking about more internal things here. The external is obviously life or death. It comes to the people of this island or when it comes to Chief Brody himself. If you look at any novel, if you look at any screenplay, these things are all emphasized right up front. The weaknesses, the fears, the desires of the character. You see this in the opening of a film. In the first 15 minutes, I was talking about Luke Skywalker, I was talking about Dorothy. I was talking about all these different characters and how you come to understand these little things right in that flatline section before the trouble gets started. What's at stake for your character? Your story, your story about a giant shark attacking, I mean, that's cool, but it doesn't mean anything if you don't have these. These things which are part of that emotional well. When I was talking about the chain by Tobias Wolf, right? I talked about, oh, here's this opening scene with the dog, which is essentially the shark attacking Chrissy. The scene that follows, there's a living room. What they're doing in the living room is they're talking about the stakes, the legal stakes, the emotional traumatic stakes, the uh, implications of his own life if he does carry through with killing this dog and what might happen to him. Look at uh, something like Winter's Bone. I don't know if you've seen the film Winter's Bone. It's also a novel by Daniel Woodrow. Right here you have Reed Dolly. It's one of Jennifer Lawrence's first starring roles. I think the Mater star. And in this, she's in the Ozarks, and it's very much a patriarchal culture, and she's going on a journey to find her dad. Her dad is gone, and her dad being gone doesn't just matter because she misses him. In fact, he was kind of a bum. The thing that matters is they're going to lose their house. And she's got these two younger brothers, and her mom is brain dead. Just sits in a rocking chair all day, sit, sit, staring at the wall. So they're going to be homeless. She also has dreams of escaping this place. She wants to go join the military and, you know, explore the world and 
eventually go to college. She has economic stakes, she has familial stakes. She has gen there's almost gendered stakes as well because as she goes on this journey through the Ozarks to try and figure out where her father is and ultimately to prove if he's alive or dead. And she begins to suspect that he's dead. And if she can prove he's dead, they'll then be forgiven for their debts. If she does this, she has to like overcome all these, these, uh, these very strict gender roles that she witnesses all throughout the Ozarks and she's not doing what she's supposed to do as a woman. Right, so here are a few different stakes that are very common, but there are other ones as well. Like I said, you know, maybe, maybe there's like a, a feminist revisionist angle to it, like gendered stakes. Maybe, maybe there's spiritual stakes. If it's a Marilyn Robinson novel or a Ken Harif novel, maybe there are spiritual stakes. You can probably make a list of 10 or so. Try to have at least five if you're writing a larger work, like a screenplay or a novel. Five things that are at stake. So, what happens next? There's a shark attack. Now, most people think of screenplays this way, and they're not wrong. They talk about them as a series of battles that lead towards the biggest battle of all. Again, they're not wrong, but I actually think there's a better way to think about it. Is a series of failures. And one of the biggest failures of all comes right here. There's another one right here. There's usually another one right here. These are, no coincidence, tied to those, emo those, those wells I was talking about, those valleys. Failures. Your character needs to fail. So right here, they come up with a plan, right? This is how I'm going to deal. And it's that can't-must situation, right? I'm gonna, this is how I'm going to try to deal with this situation. This is how I'm going to try to respond. And they're going to fail, and they're going to fail again, and they're going to fail again. So what Chief Brody is doing right here, after the inciting incident, which is not Chrissy's last swim, that's just an opening teaser, Inciting incident is, is instead when it's proven, yes, this is a shark, everybody saw it, this kid just got taken out in the middle of this beach in the opening day of swim season, tourist season. How am I going to respond to this with failure? So what he does first, he calls, he calls Hooper. He calls the Oceanography Institute. He wants help identifying the shark. The next thing he does is, instead of closing the beaches because he's forbidden from doing so, he puts a bounty on the shark. So everybody goes vigilante. All of these uh, boats take to the water and they've got dynamite they're tossing in. You know, they've got guns, they've got their little harpoons, they're drunk. And they find a shark, right? So that's another set piece. There's a big spike right here. It has to do with those bounty hunters. And then there's a really long, low point to follow. And in this long, low point that follows, you know, they find a shark. But at the moment that they find the shark, there's a lovely reversal. You know, the shark is hanging up this tiger shark. And they're measuring the mouth. They're trying to figure out, is this right? And the mother of that kid walks up to him in front of the crowd. The crowd goes silent, and she slaps him in front of everyone. Because she realizes then that he knew there was a shark. 
and he did nothing. He allowed everybody to swim. Right, so the joy of that moment, maybe we've dealt with the threat after all, is ruined. There's a pinprick to it, and it all deflates. And then things get lower and lower still. Chief Brody takes Hooper out to the, uh, to the docks later that night, and they cut open the shark, and there are no remains in it. And the bite radius is incorrect. This is not the shark they were looking for. There's another really beautiful moment before that. And it has to do with his family he's sitting at the table and he's drinking wine and he keeps pouring more and more wine. And his kid sits there at the table watching him and then his kid starts to mimic him. You know, he's like, he's rubbing his, the bridge of his nose and his kid starts to rub the bridge of his nose. He rubs his face, his kid rubs his face. He notices his kid watching him and he starts to make faces and his kid makes faces. And then he pulls the kid in into a hug. Clutches him so dearly it looks like it might hurt him. Right? These low moments where nothing spectacular is happening when it comes to helicopters exploding or ninjas lying in wait. You know, they're, they're so necessary to why I love this film. They're so necessary that I care about the quest to come. The midpoint reversal <clears throat> is a complicated one. You know, they have, it's been teased early on that there's this guy on the island, and his name is Captain Quint. And he's very much an Ahab character, right? He's played by Robert Shaw, who was drunk during most of the filming. And you can kind of tell. They resist Shaw at first because he asked for this enormous price and because he's kind of a jerk and nobody wants to deal with him. In this moment, they decided that we need to hire a boat. We need to go out in the water. We need to solve this ourselves. But there's something going on here that makes this incredibly difficult. Now, midpoint reversals usually do a number of things. One, they deal with the character's central fear. They shake everything up. They require a change of plan. They often have a change of scenery. So when it comes to fears, let's talk about this for a moment and I'll just escape Jaws for just a bit. Here's a movie you've probably seen as well. Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. What is Indy afraid of? Snakes. Snakes. When do you learn this? At the beginning. Right away. Like minute five or something like that, minute seven. Right after that great set piece in the, as he's going through the cave and the rolling boulder and all that, he runs to the plane, he's being chased by uh, these natives, he gets into the plane, we think everything's fine, but then, Jock, there's a plane, there's a snake in the plane, Jock. Oh, that's just my pet snake, Reggie. I hate snakes, Jock, I hate them. So it has to do with fear, oftentimes it has to do with love.
And it has to do with, I guess you could say, the higher order goal. Translation, what does the character want? There's usually a confluence of these three things in particular that inform this. So what does Indy want? He wants the Ark. What does he love? Mary. What does he fear? Snakes. And he also fears, alongside that, he fears not getting the thing. Right? It's the idol at the beginning. Belloc steals it from him. Fears not getting the thing. Fears snakes. He loves Marion. The higher order goal. What he wants is the Ark. When you think about this for your character, who's the character in your short story? Who's the character in your screenplay? Who's this character in your novel? Who's the character? And you are a character in your memoir. You might have to fib a little, a few things, just to make the stars align in the right way. What do you want more than anything? One of the things that you should be working towards is what's called a worst case scenario. Worst case scenario for Indiana Jones? Here he is, he's finally come upon, across the Ark. He's found the, the Well of Souls, right? He's got the right size staff, it glows upon the map, he figures it out, the Nazis are digging in the wrong place, they go over here with Salah, Salah and his men, they help like crowbar up the top to the Well of Souls and like that big nasty breath of a thousand years comes pouring out. And Saul looks down and he tosses the torch. I said, Indy, why is the floor moving? Tosses down the torch. Asps, very dangerous. You go first, Indy. Of course, the thing that he fears the most, this tomb is full of snakes. So he ropes his way down with Saul. They go through the Well of Souls. A little bit of movie trivia. If you look in the background, some of the hieroglyphics are of R2-D2 and C3PO. They pull out the gleaming arc. Seemingly, they have what they need. It gets roped up along with Sala, and then the rope falls down at Indy's feet, and he looks up, like W2FTF. And Belloc's up there. Hello, hello down there. Why with his Nazi cronies? And here's Marion. He tosses Marion down, and they're sealed in. The Nazis have the Ark. He and the thing he loves most are trapped in this cave, this tomb, surrounded by the things he fears most. Absolute worst case scenario. Okay. You think about these midpoint reversals, they're oftentimes playing with things like that. Now there's another really low moment that happens right here. It's usually called All is Lost, or the Dark Knight of the Soul in the screenplay. And this precipitates the third act. When I put this right here, don't think of this as like a visual indication of the actual length of the screenplay. Because sometimes the third act is actually only 10 minutes. But let's just say around here, there's this moment that is all where all is lost, where there's another worst case scenario occurring. Another one of those deep valleys before the biggest spike of all. So Worst case scenario for Indiana Jones. Midpoint reversal, he has to change his whole plan. 
Other examples of this, Pet Cemetery. The thing that this guy wants more than anything is to get his son back. It's all he wants. Then he buries him in this unsacred ground. And we begin to understand what might happen next. What the character thought he wanted isn't actually what he wanted. We were talking about this earlier in my fellows workshop. You know, we had this character, this old woman, she's lusting after a younger man. It's kind of like a revisionist version of Lolita. Even. And we came to talk about it and recognizing that once she finally gets what she thinks she wants, it's going to be a trapdoor moment, right? Finally seeks out this love interest, everything's going to fall apart and make sure her game will have to change thereafter. So he thinks, the father thinks he wants Gage to come back from the dead, but that's not actually what he wants. He ends up opening this whole Pandora's box as a result of that. Think about Indiana Jones and uh, The Last Crusade. It's uh, basically the same sort of thing right here. You know, what does he want? He wants the Grail instead of the Ark. What does he fear? He still fears snakes. But he also fears losing the thing. That's emphasized right up front as well. Instead of Belloc stealing the idol, it's this other guy who steals that cross at the beginning. But the thing that he loves in The Last Crusade is his father. He also, the other thing that he fears is being bested by his father. There's this weird tension between them. So the midpoint reversal of that film in The Last Crusade is right here when Ilsa, who was a seeming ally, turns out to be a traitor and a Nazi, she has this booklet which has the location of the Holy Grail. She's also been sleeping with his father. She talks in his sleep. That's what Sean Connery says uh, at one point. So he comes to understand that his father has bested him romantically. And, you know, the place is on fire and his father is in danger of both gunfire from the Nazis and this, place, this castle burning down, so he has to save him. All these things come together right there. And again, there's a total change in scenery that accompanies this because they then have to go out of, I can't remember where they are at that moment, in Austria, I believe, and they have to go elsewhere, down to the Middle East to figure out where the grail is. In The Untouchables, this whole film, Kevin Costner, who plays a prohibition, prohibition federal agent, what he wants is to bust Al Capone. This midpoint reversal, he's also a family man, this midpoint reversal happens when he takes his men out into the country. They leave Chicago, change of scenery. They think they have Capone. They close in on the gang. There's this cabin. Massive gunfight occurs. They recognize in the fallout of this failed, this failed moment, they don't actually want Capone. They don't need Capone. And they will never get Capone because he's too clever. He's too untouchable. Instead, what they realize is they can get his accountant. If they get the money man, the numbers man, then they can bring down the whole Capone empire. Change of plan. What they thought they wanted, they don't actually want. Opens up the possibility of this final half of the film. There's something that I see over and over and over again in screenplays that I read, in novels that I read, in memoirs that I read. It's called the second act slump. Second acts are soft in the middle. They say that's the hardest thing to pull off. 
No, I don't even think there is a second act. I think of things in parts. Sometimes I think about screenplays in eight parts. Sometimes I think of them in five parts, right? So I'm, I'm already been sort of breaking things down for you here, where I'm like, okay, I think this is a part of the film right here, those first 15 minutes. I think this is a part of the film right here, those next ones. I think between here and here is another act. I think between here and here is another act. I think between here and here is another act. And there, one, two, three, four, five, six. Six acts. Forget three. Build towards that midpoint reversal instead. Then you have a, that what I was referring to before when it comes to the brighter, brightest stars in the constellation, right? You know, you're moving towards that worst, one of those worst case scenarios. When you're moving towards that reversal, you have something else to align your story by. Okay, so back to Jaws. Chief Brody recognizes that he needs to do what he fears most. Leave his family behind. This is after his son almost dies in the lagoon. Go out of the water. And Chief Brody is terrified of water the same way that Indiana Jones is terrified of snakes. You know, he goes first to uh, Captain Quint's place, and it's a really difficult thing to, after initially denying Captain Quint, to convince him to go on this mission now and to bring them along. So he goes into Captain Quint's quarters with Hooper, and I love this moment because of the way it uses mise-en-scene, the way it uses, uh, if you don't know what that theatrical term means, like if you put characters on a stage, the way they're standing next to each other, costumes they're wearing, the props they're incorporating, all these things inform meaning in a moment, visual meaning in a moment. So in this moment, he goes to this guy's, uh, Captain Quint's sea shanty, let's call it, and he walks in, and immediately, Captain Quint is pulling out of this boiling barrel all of these shark jaws, like he just killed three this morning, and all the walls are covered in shark jaws. And he's like, hey, you want some apricot brandy? I made it myself. And the chief takes a little sip and then spits it out. And he keeps walking. Captain Quint's pacing all around them like this, like this bear that's trapped. And they're standing still. They just keep turning to watch him go. And then he climbs up onto this uh, staircase and he grabs a bag and he chucks the bag down at them and almost knocks Richard Dreyfus over. Then he comes back down the stairs and he goes over to this corner and he grabs a thing of rope and he throws it to Richard Dreyfus and says, you know, tie me a sheep shank. And so Richard Dreyfus ties up a sheep shank in like two seconds flat and tosses it back. He doesn't even look at it. He just knocks it aside. And he grabs Hooper's hands and he goes, You got soft hands, Mr. Hooper. You've been counting money all your life. This is brilliantly orchestrated scene. This rough ballet between these three men and their divergent personalities before at last they head off into the ocean. And you see, perfectly framed through the window, one of those shark jaws that he hung up on the wall, it's right in the window, and the camera goes through it and finds their boat taking off. I love the foreboding of that image. Change of scenery, change of plan, acknowledgement of fear, acknowledgement of love. A really, really low moment to precede it before the exciting quest truly begins. So, if you think about these three big peaks in your story, your screenplay, these three deep valleys especially, right? You have three things to build off right there. 
And it all really comes back to, you know, the so what of it all connects to like this, usually like a core wound of the character, or what is referred to as a key insight to the character. I'm going to be talking about this a little bit during my comics lecture, but the idea that, and I know that people are multidimensional, I know that people want lots of things, they're competing motivations for doing anything in life, but usually a character in a movie has one thing above all else that drives them, a key insight, a core wound. So if it's Batman, right? Batman's parents, Thomas and Martha Wayne, they take him to a movie, they take a shortcut afterwards through Crime Alley, aptly named, because they're soon mugged, gunshots ring out, there's pearls and there's blood on the asphalt, young Bruce Wayne is weeping in the dark. If not for that moment, there would be no Batman. So one of the things you're typically trying to figure out is like, what is my crime alley? What is the key insight into my character that drives them to this moment? How is it connected to their worst case scenario? The character has something above all else that controls them. And what I'm particularly interested in Jaws is Captain Quinn. He's just one of my favorite characters of all time in any movie. He's my spirit animal. So Captain Quinn has a monologue. And this monologue occurs right, essentially right before the beginning of Act 3. It's right around here. And first what happens is the men are in the belly of the ship and they're drinking whiskey. And these guys have not gotten along the whole time. I mean, I mentioned that moment in the sea shanty earlier. They were, you know, battling back and forth. But at this moment, they've gone through the ringer together, the thresher together. They're scared. Now they're down in the belly of the ship, they're drinking whiskey. They start to joke around. They start to laugh. Richard Dreyfus and Captain Quint even start to undress. It's very much a romantic moment. So what they're doing at this moment is they're trading scar stories. And Richard Dreyfus, you know, he's like, ah, I got this from a thresher shark. And then Captain Quint's like, oh, I can't, you know, I can't bend my elbow past this point. I was in an arm wrestling contest in an oaky bar in San Francisco. Big Chinese fella pulled me right over. And then Richard Dreyfus is like, ah, check out this one, check out this one. And Captain Quint's like, you're wearing a sweater? Because Richard Dreyfus is really headed hairy. And he goes, no, 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 Mary Ellen Moffat. She broke my heart. <laughs> and he starts laughing. We're laughing. They're flush-faced. They're in a state of undress. Vulnerable. It's the equivalent of a, sex a sexualized moment earlier with Chrissy. And then Chief Brody says, what about that one? And he points to Captain Quint's arm. He goes, ah, I got a tattoo removed. And Richard Dreyfus goes, let me guess, let me guess. Mother. <laughs> and starts giggling again. And what Hooper doesn't realize, and what Captain Quint is about to tell them, is that that tattoo that he got removed is of great significance. 
Now, this moment, which I think is the greatest, besides maybe the opening of Patton, maybe the, and maybe the end of Devil's Advocate, maybe the greatest cinematic monologue out there. But Rich, Robert Shaw apparently was responsible in part for writing this monologue. He also was so severely drunk when he gave the first, when they did, shot it the first time, they sent him home to sober up. Then he came back and did it perfectly in one take. But the seesaw effect of Omalos, the seesaw effect of time and distance overcome, the seesaw effect at the beginning of Jaws, it's right there. Because they've been laughing so hard and now everything goes dead silent as Quint tells his story. Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side, Chief. He was coming back from the island of Tinian to Leyte, just delivered the bomb. The Hiroshima bomb. 1,100 men went into the water. Vessel went down in 12 minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger. 13-footer. You know how you know that when you're in the water, Chief? You tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. What we didn't know was our bomb mission had been so secret, no distress signal had been sent. I didn't even list this overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. This is the moment when the violins start. It's been silent up to that point, and all of a sudden, setting everything on edge. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. Ooh, it's uh, kind of like old squares in a battle, like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo. The idea was, shark comes to the nearest man, that man, he start pounding, hollering, screaming. Sometimes the shark would go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know, the thing about a shark, it's got lifeless eyes. Black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When it comes at you, doesn't seem to be living. Till he bites you, and those black eyes roll over white. Then you hear that terrible high pitched screaming, and the ocean turns red. In spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they come in and they rip you to pieces. And it goes on. And by the end of it, all of these men, 1,100 men went into the water. 400 came out. By the end of this, what he says is, I'll never put on a life jacket again. When you come to understand this, he is Ahab. You understand his motivation. Why is he doing this? It's because of that key in moment of key insight, that core wound. Ahab lost his leg. All right. This guy lost his men, his friends. He said, you know, any sense of reality. His life ended in this moment in many ways. He's never going to put on a life vessel again. Me, this is a suicide mission. They're all probably going to die. Because Captain Quinn, you later see him, he takes out the radio with the baseball bat. Ship's going down, Captain's going with it. Right? So now, Chief Brody, you know, you come to recognize, you can almost anticipate what's coming. The ship is going to sink. He's gonna to have to face his greatest fear. He's gonna be the lone man standing against the shark in the end. 
But that key insight is especially beautiful. And the composition of that scene as it turns on itself is so brilliant. I can watch that over and over and over again. It gives me chills every time. Um, so with this formula, I think you've described a lot of movies, but what would you say about, you know, kind of like, you know those weird French films, like Belle de Jour or something, where there's just a lot of stuff happening and it's there's not really a lot of normal <coughs> variance. It's just kind of going on and then you're like, oh, wow, society sucks. Like, sure. what would you say? Like, would this formula still apply to that? Or is it a completely different Well, here's what I'm saying. I mean, the, there are always going to be projects that defy this, right? What I was saying before, in the earlier classes, like Picasso, he knew, if you go to the Picasso Museum, you see that he painted in realism before Cubism, right? So there's an acknowledgement of this, or Sergio Leone very understands very well the John Ford Western, and he took it and he shattered it on the ground. Now look at a movie like 21 Grams, 31 Grams, oh, I forget, I think it's 21. That movie is told in a modular or mosaic design. Okay, so let's say, here's a scene. You see, you know, Sean Penn staring at himself in the mirror, shaking. He's in the bathroom, he punches the mirror, shatters. End of scene. Later you see, you know, uh, Benicio Del Toro, and he's hurriedly wiping at the bumper of his car, which is dented, and looking around in paranoia. Uh, you see uh, Naomi Watts, and she is holding a coffee cup and just staring into the distance in her bathrobe, her hair must. And then maybe she starts to cry. And you're like, what the hell is going on here? And it's all over the place. And what you eventually understand is that their kid has been killed in a hit and run, that Benicio Del Toro was the guy who did it. He was drunk at the time. But the way, despite the fact that the chronology of it is all scrambled, it still has these things at the same moment, occurring at the same moment. So, you don't have to feel like you're beholden to formula, but you have to know the formula if you're going to cleverly reinvent it. Kim Barnes, a novelist. She has some friends who are part of a theater troupe, a theater rep in uh, Moscow, Idaho, and she invites them over and she makes them a big dinner. And she gives them a bunch of wine, and then she has a scene, and then she gives them the scene, and they act it out, and she takes notes. And so they're improvisers, and they just go back and forth. She sort of cheats it in that way. She does that for all her novels. Uh, I have taken, I have lifted conversations I have overheard or participated in and put them into books. And sometimes it's just pure invention, right? And the best thing you can do, I think, is read it aloud because sometimes you recognize how Latin your dialogue is when you say it aloud as opposed to read it. Like, I would never say that. It's so clumsy on my tongue. And there's often times with dialogue you're much more articulate in narration than you are in dialogue. So let's say it's first person. You're writing something out in first person. The narrator could be quite clever, 
lots of turns of phrases, but then they're put on the spot to speak, and they might be more staccato. Might be a little bit less, you know, forthcoming as a speaker in dialogue. So be careful about your, you know, Quentin Tarantino is very verbose. Ray McCarver, though, I think has brilliant dialogue and is, it's so spare by comparison. So those are a few tricks anyway. Other questions from the game? I have a format question. Yeah. Um, Final Draft is sort of the Coca-Cola screenwriting software. Do you use it? Yeah, so Final Draft is like the Microsoft Word of screenwriting. The thing about screenwriting is they there is you have to have a certain format or people won't read it. Is the format different for podcasts and TV shows than, than feature films? They want me to use Final Draft when I'm writing podcasts as well. And those are Guild Writers Guild approved, you know, episodes part of the Writers Guild. Same rules, except what I'm doing in podcasts is I'm also getting a lot of audio clues, cues, and I'm being a little more aggressive than I would in a screenplay because you're not supposed to say in screenplay like what your camera angles are. Or necessarily how the music will rise in this moment or something. You're, you're supposed to leave that to the director. But in a podcast situation, I'm much more involved. I'm sort of, you know, I'm there as a producer as well, so I can be a lot more aggressive and articulate in my scripts, and more, whereas I'm more spare with final, without my screenplays for a film or TV. But the thing is, uh, Final Draft is you basically have to use Final Draft. You, you don't really have a choice. It's annoying, it costs whatever, a hundred bucks, but that's the software you gotta use. And it just automatically puts everything in place. You just learn the commands, and it'll go character, scene description, etc. Now, one of the things you can do if you're trying to figure out how do I write a screenplay, how do I learn this format, read screenplays. And they are available online for free. Watch the movie, read the screenplay, watch the movie again, Watch the movie again with the director's commentary on. That's how you learn to write a screenplay. Thanks for hanging out. And enjoy Perry. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts, or as you may have noticed, Deviate without Rolf Potts, since this episode was all about Ben Percy's screenwriting lecture at the Paris Writing Workshop. Check out Ben's excellent writing craft book, Thrill Me, or any of his fiction books, including Suicide Woods, which came out just this week. I have links to all that in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviateatrolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs> <laughs>